Hey, and welcome to Ready, Set, Give. I'm Kat, your BDI host, and this is a podcast on all things fundraising, marketing, and nonprofit leadership. Today, we have a really exciting episode with BDI's creative content manager, Anna Coons. We'll be getting in the weeds on nonprofit copywriting and brand guidelines. Welcome, Anna. Thanks so much for having me, Kat. Yes, thanks for being here. Okay, well, I'm excited to get into it today. We are really going to get into the nitty gritty today. We're going to talk about specifics of mandatories and brand style guidelines. So we just wanted to start off by saying, you know, we're really going to get into the details on this episode. This episode is for the English majors. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Anna, before we get into it, why don't you go ahead and tell us what brings you to the table today? Okay, I've been at BDI for over 10 years now. I started off as a proofreader and have stayed on the proofreading team, but we have since changed our name to Creative Content because we thought that encompassed more of what we do because obviously as proofreaders, we catch typos and errors, but we are also the experts on client voice at BDI. So we know all our clients really well through their copy. We don't actually interact with clients a lot face-to-face, but we get to know them through their copy changes, their copy preferences, and we're the ones who create all their jobs for them. I have a team of four creative content specialists who work with me at BDI. So a lot of what I say represents them as well. Great. And you work primarily with our missions clients, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So today, I know probably the examples that you'll be talking about will be from our rescue mission clients, but really these roles apply to any sort of nonprofit. Yes. Nonprofits of any kind, and even like Corporations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, BDI has these yes. mandatories too. So yeah, I so, think that's right. Great. Okay. Have you met our clients, any of our clients before? I get to meet a lot of clients in their onboarding meetings, which some of what I'm saying today is because of those discussions I've had with clients in onboarding, questions they've asked me, questions I've realized are helpful to ask them. I've got to visit a few clients, especially local ones, Mm -hmm. which is always really cool because most of my job is pretty separate from the day-to-day interactions with clients. So I always love when we get to connect the like detailed Excel spreadsheet type of work we do to actually the people being helped. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering because you're saying, you know, you know a client so well just by their content. If you meet a client and then you're like, this is exactly how I pictured you through your content that I Yes, totally. Or or there'll be one person at the nonprofit organization that really cares more about copy than the other people. So I feel like I can usually figure out which one that is when I finally meet them. (laughs) Um, Not everyone at every organization cares as much about copy mandatories, which makes sense. Everyone has to play a different role. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. And you're an Enneagram one. Yes. For those of you that don't know, The Enneagram is a personality assessment. Yeah. And it sorts everybody by nine numbers. There's a lot of like science behind it. And there's even like ancient philosophy behind it. I just wanted to bring it up because I feel like most people I know that are 
proofreaders or really detail-oriented <laughs> people are Enneagram ones. Yes. Ones are, I think in a lot of platforms, they're called the perfectionist, which definitely makes sense. It's like detail-oriented, organized. The like common thing you see said about ones a lot is if you know somebody in your life who like reloads the dishwasher after you do it and they, they try to do it the right way, that they're probably an Enneagram one. <laughs> I would say that's probably true of almost everyone on the creative content team in that our brains tend to be pretty black and white. And in that way, it's interesting because we're on a team with writers. We work really close with writers who can sometimes be the opposite. It's like they see things in in color. Writers are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it makes for a good balance on the creative team. Some of us are focused on the rules and I think that's important, but then it's also important to know when we can or should break those rules. And that Mm -hmm. can be a really healthy balance among the creative team at an agency, but also between the client and their agency. Yeah. I'm an Enneagram 9, which does not apply to this conversation, but it's you know, a peacemaker. Yeah, for well, harmony. it makes sense that you're a host. You're like a moderator of a podcast. <laughs> also, honestly, I think the Enneagram is a circle. So nines and ones are actually next to each other. Yes. I have a lot of close relationships with nines in my life. I think nines and ones are especially oh, uh, made yeah. for each other. I have ones in my life, so that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you just start by telling? Those that are listening that might not know what mandatories are, what are they? How do you use them? Why are they important? Yes, definitely. So the word mandatories is like agency language for basically a set of preferences that you have as an organization to communicate yourself really well. A lot of times they're related to the work you do or your branding, but sometimes they're also just preferences, like uh, don't start sentences with the word but. Something like that might be like the director's preference over, you know, an organizational rule. But we consider all those things kind of equal mandatories. What a client likes and what they don't like and how to talk about their programs in a way that's actually true to them. Okay. So, yeah, in planning for this episode today— I noticed that, you know, there's really nitty-gritty in the weeds types of mandatories, and then there's really big picture, high-level ones as well. Yes, definitely. Ironically, sometimes the nitty-gritty ones are the ones that nonprofits might not think to communicate or even to decide amongst themselves. One of the first questions I ask a client when we onboard is, is there a the in front of your name? Because sometimes even among the organization, they talk differently about what even the mission's name is. Casually, you might refer to them one way, but in your communications, you probably want to be consistent. So we've had clients go back and forth. You know, they they want the the, and then after a couple of years, they realize none of us say that when we talk, so let's mm. let's take it out. But that's an example of one that you don't really think of, but it's good to have even the smallest things like that nailed down, so then you can be communicating consistently across all your platforms. That's a great example. So you shared a little bit about more of those in-the-weed type mandatories that somebody would have. What's like middle level? Yeah, so 
in the weeds would be like the the in front of their name or how they use capitalization in their URL, something that's middle level, which this will be, I think, the majority of mandatories we expect from a client are words that the client likes, words that they don't like, or or also words that are accurate to them versus inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Some examples from some of the nonprofits we work with, some like to talk about what they offer as shelter and others only want to use the word housing, mm-hmm. somewhat lodging. Some like to say that they feed people and others will only want to say that they provide meals for people. And that has to do with probably whether they're literally handing people a plate of food or they're helping to pay for their weekly groceries. And then there's some more preference language, like something like addiction versus substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Some of our clients really like to soften language around some of the really tough things in life like domestic violence or sexual assault. They'll want us to, you know, treat those with more, especially when we're telling somebody's story, they want us to be a little more vague and not as explicit probably to uh, protect that person. Yeah. We have this even for BDI on the B2B side. We don't say we raise money you know, because we do help people raise money, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to help increase impact. Exactly. Things like that. Yes, my team keeps notes to keep track of all our client mandatories, and BDI is listed as a client in our notes, even though it's us, because we have a significant amount of corporate mandatories. We really started honing in on that, I feel like, several years ago. My first few years here We weren't really thinking as much about communicating consistently, but that's really changed a lot as we've focused more on exactly what you said, wanting to represent ourselves well and true to our values, which is a lot of how our clients decide their mandatories too. It's Some of it is based on things they literally don't do, but a lot of it, like you said, raise money versus releasing generosity is more like a value-based system. Yes. Okay, so what if a nonprofit isn't sure if they have these types of requirements? Yeah, that's a great question. This is something I come across a lot when we're onboarding a client. So we're first getting to know them. I'll ask them, do you guys have any copy mandatories? And a lot of times they'll kind of shake their head or ask what we mean by that. And so I have a few questions I like to ask or or I encourage them to ask themselves if if they're not sure if they have copy mandatories. Okay. One of those questions is, how do we want to talk about the people we serve? So a really black and white version of that is, do you call the people who are at your nonprofit guests? Do you call them clients? Do you call them residents? What do you use internally? And do you want your external communications to donors to match that? How important is that to you? Another aspect of that, that I actually wrote a quick shot about this last year. Oh, we'll link it. (laughs) Okay, perfect. (laughs) Is what the industry calls people-first language, which has to do with when we're talking about homelessness and hunger, how we describe people who are suffering from those things. So at BDI, a lot of times when we talk about the people that our clients are serving, we'll say they serve homeless and hungry men, women, and children. But 
recently, over the past couple years, I think because of changes across the industry and other industries, we've been realizing that a lot of our nonprofits really like to use people-first language, which would mean we say we serve those experiencing homelessness and hunger or suffering from homelessness and hunger. People-first language would even be saying men, women, and children who are homeless and hungry. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is that this is like a temporary part of what they're going through. It's not defining who they are. So some people feel like putting the adjective before the noun, so homeless people, is kind of treating them like they're just in this generalized group of people who will right. always be homeless. Like a classification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So BDI has been hearing that more lately, and we've definitely been incorporating a, a lot more people-first language. That's a good example of something that a mission can think through in how they want to communicate to their donors. Another question that I like to ask clients to think about is their community. What does homelessness look like in their community? We work with a lot of nonprofits who their direct mail is focused on homelessness. Yeah. And the questions I ask are, you know, can you see it? Is it visible? Are there people out on the streets homeless, like here in Los Angeles? Or is it more invisible? Are those people maybe sleeping in their cars or maybe on their friends' couches? Mm. And so sometimes if it's less visible— Writing that's referring to the man on the street isn't going to connect with donors because they're going to yeah. say, oh, I don't know any people like that. Yeah, I don't see that in my community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot of that, you know, we work with nonprofits across the country in cities and in rural areas. And so homelessness looks really different in those places. That's so interesting because now hearing you say it, I'm like, oh, that totally makes sense. But I would never think— about that, you know, that you're thinking, do we call someone a homeless person, a person experiencing homelessness? Can we not put this type of language in this region versus another region on the other side of the country? Like, it's so just psychologically interesting, too, about how you're writing and looking at copy that psychologically makes sense to the donor, yeah, as well as representing the organization. I think that sometimes a lot of what we're trying to say is kind of this this could be you or this could be somebody that you know. We're trying to make the donor feel connected to this problem and to this issue in a way that it doesn't feel so foreign and separate and invisible from them because the more they're connected to it, the more they'll realize how valuable the mission's work is and that maybe it could be their neighbor or their son that needs the mission a year from now. I yeah. think a lot of our language is trying to do that. Yeah. Any other questions that you would ask a client that are unsure about these mandatories? Yeah. So besides thinking about who they serve, I also like to ask them how they want to talk about the services they provide. Again, there's some nitty gritty examples or big picture, but some nitty gritty examples are whether they want to use the word counseling. We we talk about services beyond meals and shelter a lot. And a lot of our clients provide way more holistic recovery services, but they all want to talk about it pretty differently. So some want to only use the word advocacy. Some use the word guidance. Some use counsel. 
Some want to say restoration instead of recovery, because I think recovery for a lot of people implies some kind of addiction. And Mm -hmm. some clients, that's really true to the services they provide, so they don't mind that implication, where for others, they'll say, you know, we're not really a rehab facility, so we want to talk about restoration. Yeah. I also encourage clients to think about where they want the emphasis to be on whether it's their emergency services, like meals and shelter, is that a huge need in their community? Mm-hmm. Or on their long-term services, like recovery, long-term rehabilitation, job training. But that is an area that can sometimes butt up against your agency in a really healthy way where, you know, as an agency, we know that meals and shelter, those kinds of fundraising appeals will always raise more money. And so as long as the organization is providing emergency care in some way, a lot of times BDI is going to want to emphasize that, especially during holidays, during times of high fundraising seasons. We really try to use creative outlets to talk about the more in-depth, deep healing care that our nonprofits provide. But the mediums to do that tend to be things like newsletters Mm -hmm. or longer form appeals that are going to donors that know the organization well. Right, right. So yeah, some of these service mandatories, they're really important to understand. As an agency, we always want to know our clients well and know exactly what kind of work they're doing. And we're also going to encourage them to talk a lot about the emergency care they're doing. Yeah, especially part of the job of an agency is we're looking at, alongside our client, all the results. Yeah, exactly. And to make those types of recommendations based on, you know, what will help the organization raise more money. Exactly. It's it's a tension within the agency, too. You know, as the creative team, we love to talk about long-term healing. I mean, getting to write a letter about somebody's life changing over the course of years can be really amazing and exciting. Mm-hmm. And then it can just flop in the mail compared to the, the yeah. letter that's talking about providing one meal to one hungry person. Um, again, we try to do both at BDI. I think we do a really good job of making sure we're talking about both types of care. Yeah. Yeah. We experience it for the corporate side of things. We'll create a Facebook ad and we're like, this is the best thing we've created all year. Yes. And then we get results back and it's just a total flop. And like the other ad that we didn't even like was served. And (laughs) (laughs) I know sometimes the things that are most exciting and, and unique to us and are getting the most in-depth into the deep work that our nonprofit clients are doing, sometimes they flop a lot of times. Yep. (laughs) Just sad. The last question in terms of kind of mid-level mandatories that I like to ask our nonprofits to consider is how they want to talk about their donors and the gifts they receive, meaning the money mostly. Some of them want to talk about donors as donors. Some want to use supporters, partners, friends. Some of our clients are sensitive about how we talk about money, Mm -hmm. whether we use the word give a gift or share a gift. It can be complicated. Some of our clients want the ask to be pretty soft. And again, that's something that as an agency, we'll always challenge them on. Yeah. Probably by showing results of tests that show the more direct, straightforward ask, we'll usually get 
a much better response. Mm -hmm. But we try to find the balance between, you know, what the mission is comfortable with and how they talk to their donors, you know, when their donors come visit the mission. Yeah. We want to talk to them in a similar way in, in their appeals. Yeah. Want to be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then what are some of the really high-level type of mandatories that nonprofits have? Yeah. So one of the questions we ask that's more high-level, big picture for a lot of our nonprofits is we try to get a gauge on how religious or spiritual or Christian they want their copy to be. BDI as an agency, we tend to emphasize the Christian motivation behind our work and a lot of our nonprofit clients' work. So we will talk about Jesus, we'll talk about Christ, we'll use Bible verses, we'll use cross graphics. That's really at the core of a lot of our clients. But then, of course, we have some clients that really don't want any of that kind of language. And it's actually for really different reasons. It's not all the same reason at all. Some are super faith-driven and motivated, but they're worried, and for good reason, about alienating their donors. Yeah, Maybe they are in a big city where they get tons of donors from a variety of backgrounds because, Mm -hmm. you know, our missions can tell where their donors come from. Maybe they know that they have a big group of Jewish donors, so they don't necessarily want the copy to be written in a way that assumes that the donor is giving out of the same motivation, out of this Christian motivation. There are a variety of reasons why a nonprofit might choose or not choose to emphasize Christian themes in their marketing. We know all of them care about their clients spiritually, and we know that each one of them is concerned with healing and not just feeding and sheltering, but they all want to care for their clients as whole people. They just have different preferences of the language they use to describe that care. Yeah, yeah. So that's something we we like to have a open conversation with them about. A lot of it is dependent on where the mission is in the country, a city, or, and a lot of it can depend on the mission's leadership. You know, sometimes when we have a change in an executive director and a, or a development director, sometimes the culture can shift yeah. and they'll want to move in a different direction with their copy. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I know we have a lot more to talk about, but that concludes part one of this episode. We are going to hop straight back in with Anna in part two to talk about the healthy tension between creative mandatories and fundraising results. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please tune in for part two and share with your team. And thank you so much, Anna, for joining us. 